This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, the video you're watching right now is a production from The Remnant Radio. You'll notice uh, myself, Michael Roundtree, and Michael Miller are not the co-host of this program on Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, we are covering church history. Here on Remnant Radio, we want to cover theology, church history, and the gifts of the Spirit. But none of us are patristic scholars, but we know some. Uh, In fact, the scholars that we interview frequently on church history, we have empowered to make weekly content here on Remnant Radio. So for the next 12 weeks, Josh Hoffert, Father Ron Drummond, and Matthew Escobar are going to be your guides through the early church fathers as they tackle this patristic period of history uh, that we are calling Back to the Fathers. And uh, speaking of Father Ron Drummond, he wears that clerical collar he every does. single week, and I think he needs something new. Yeah. We are he- entirely crowdfunded, and if you donate to the Remnant Radio, perhaps we could afford to Another provide shirt. Father Ron Drummond with a new shirt. Solid. So uh, that is, speaking of us being a crowdfunded ministry, we are. I want to invite you to uh, to contribute. If you've benefited in any way from Remnant Radio's content, uh, two ways that you can do that. You can click on the link for PayPal or Patreon. PayPal is for a one-time donation. Patreon is for a recurring donation once a month for as little as $5 a month. And we provide you with exclusive content that Josh and I come up with, as well as uh, some of our other contributors. So I want to invite you guys to do that. Consider donating. And now stay tuned for Back to the Fathers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Episode 7 of Back to the Fathers, a special production of The Remnant Radio uh, show. <laughs> we like we like is that gonna happen every time we say remnant radio <laughs> no we just like messing with the anglicans that's what it is clearly clearly <laughs> well anyway yeah, now, for, uh, okay by the way Art, before you go any further for the record because this question comes up in every single it video, does it does father ron is not catholic he is Anglican, and there is a big difference between the two. Okay, there we go. Yes, yes. I, I am not a Roman Catholic. Uh, I am an Anglican. And uh, maybe one of these days when we have a little bit of time, I'll explain what the clerical collar is all about. There's actually kind of a fascinating story behind it. But at any rate, uh, welcome back <laughs> to Back to the Fathers on the Remnant Radio, uh, a show where we dive deep into the history of Christian theology and the teaching and thinking of the early church fathers. Uh, My name is Father Ron Drummond, and I'm here along with Matthew Esquivel and Joshua Hoffert. And uh, over the past few weeks, we have been covering the uh, early church fathers' debates, controversies, discussions, and teaching about the person of Christ. And uh, so, Matthew, would you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing today and what we've got coming up? And uh, before you do that, I just want to remind everybody that if you like the content that you're seeing on Back to the Fathers, uh, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and also uh, put any thoughts or questions into the comments. 
Matthew. Well, hello, everybody. We're excited about today's episode that Josh Hoffer is going to lead us in. We are continuing our focus. The theme of this month in Back to the Fathers has been the Christology of the Fathers. And so last week we talked about, or these past couple of weeks, we uh, talked about the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius versus Arius. So check that out. Santa punches Arius, um, so the story goes. And then last week we talked about um, a, a guy named Apollinaris and this debate about whether Jesus Christ, is, does, does he have a human mind? So so back at Nicaea, it was, is Jesus fully God? And then last week our discussions were really centered on, uh, broadly speaking, is Jesus truly human? Does he have everything that a human has, um, including a human mind or intellect or noose? And so check out last week if you want to learn more about that. Today, Josh Hoffert's going to take us in with another theological debate that happens in the early church, which is not uncommon, is um, about the natures of Christ and about the union of Christ. Um, how does his, uh, um, um, the union of, of divinity in humanity how, how do we talk about that? How do we understand that? And so Josh Hoffert's got a lot of the uh, historical context as well as the theological debates that were going on there in these uh, in these uh, in the fifth century with a, a guy named Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius Nestorius of Antioch. So Josh Hoffert, kick it off. I can kick it off for sure. Um, the the well, and and as Matthew said, we've covered. You, you could kind of see a flow in the thought process of um, of these the councils that come together, of the theological debates that happen, even flowing back from I think when uh, when Ron talked through the um, the Nicene Council and the debate with Arius, um, going even back to scriptural debates about the nature of Jesus. You know, you have John in First John four one talking about. Uh, what looks like the Gnostic heresy and addressing that. And so we've seen this flow, of course. Um, and, and the questions that arise throughout the early church are questions that um, it, it, not just philosophy gives rise to or, um, or people that are prone to arguments <laughs> give rise to, but that Scripture really forces us to ask. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and who is Jesus? What does it mean? What does it mean that he is? Scripture says in John one, of course, that he's God. He's with God. He is God, and but then it also says he takes on flesh. And so, you know, obviously Matt talked about that last time. The distinction of flesh being different than the distinction of just a body, um, and those are those are latent within the um, those lie within the um, the Greek terms there specifically actually carry different connotations about them. So, so these arguments are going on because Scripture really brings out the questions as you read through it is Jesus is fully God, but then we see him being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so what does that look like and how does that, how does that work? So these aren't just um, things that happen in a vacuum. There's th- they're things that ha- happen because Scripture really forces us to think about them if we take Scripture seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not even that, well, okay, we talked about it then, so we don't talk about it today anymore. I, I was having a conversation with a friend um, a few days ago, just as I was, my head was swimming through Nestorius and Cyril and, um, and basically what I've like what, what my, uh, my tagline for this episode in my brain is how not to do a council. 
Um, and uh, <laughs> how not to debate the story. Oh, gosh. The story of Nestorius. Civil discourse was not yeah. on the <laughs> was was not on the agenda. Yeah. So so as I'm swimming through that, talking with a friend of mine about uh, about the things that were going on, this this person said, "Well, can't like you know, can't we just get past all this stuff and actually do the work of Jesus and." Um, why do we get so caught up in all this, in the study and knowledge and stuff like that? Jesus is calling us to actual work. And, and you know, there's a fair critique there, I think, as well. Um, but with that said, we're still seeing these debates rage on today in in very prominent church circles. I mean, you look at the episode that uh, Josh Lewis and Michael Roundtree did, I think it was just last week, on kenosis. And that that very much so is a Christological conversation um, right. that we're still trying to figure out what we think about when we think about Jesus. And, right. And when you and, say you say kenosis, for those that are maybe tuning in yes. that, that didn't see that episode, we're, we're talking about Philippians 2, where it says that the son, how he emptied himself, being in the form of God, emptied himself, that, that kenosis, um, that is... Uh, that emptying and became the form of a slave. What do we mean by that? Did he did he empty some of his divine? At, did he set aside some of his divine attributes? Did he set aside his divine privileges or both when he became a man? So that's that's kind of the conversation going on with Philippians two and Josh. I, I love that you're bringing that that you know you're um, saying that because what we're we're still having conversations today about what is what is what are the implications of Jesus. Is the word made flesh? What does it mean that he's in the form of God, form of slave? Um, I always thought kenosis was a city in Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I learned something new every day with you guys. This is fantastic. Okay. You can't play the dumb... The, the dumb guy when you've got a, a collar and glasses. Oh, tr- <laughs> you look oh, too smart for that. <laughs> oh, trust me, I, sh- I sure can. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of us. There's but, there's a, there's multiple reasons why we call him father. That's because he also is a dad, and any dad knows how to play dumb. That's for the, sure. Yes, the, and and make dad jokes. But uh, you know, kind of jumping in about this, uh, Joshua, pushing back a little bit about yeah. uh, your friend. You know, when, 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 it is a fair critique to say, let's not get so tied up in knowledge and let's just get on with the work of Jesus. But in another sense, I think that creates a false dichotomy because uh, we find in the New Testament itself in the Gospels, one of the reasons Jesus spent so much time uh, t- trying to get his disciples to understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah yeah. was so that they mm-hmm. would properly understand what it meant to be a disciple. In other words, if, if we don't understand Jesus aright, then we won't understand how to follow him aright. And just as an example, so if, if we err too far on the side of divinity against humanity within Christ, well, then we might view religion as sort of an escape from this world and any responsibilities. Right, right, and on right. the other hand, if, if we err on the side of his humanity to the exclusion of his divinity, then we might find ourselves with a sort of little engine that could version of Christianity, be like Jesus and just try hard enough and God will adopt you as his son too. Right. right you know right, what I mean? Right. right. It, yeah. No, yeah. you lose, you lose that with overemphasis on the humanity. You lose that, that it's God that's saving us in Christ. God, it is second Corinthians five. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, you know? And so that's, there's something that happened 
at the death and resurrection of Jesus, namely our salvation. You know? Right. right. Um, <laughs> but um, but it was God in the flesh doing that, you know. And I think I think you're, you're I completely agree, Father Ron. That there's 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 implications in how we see Jesus and how we worship Jesus and how we relate to Jesus and how we even attempt to emulate Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's yeah. all dependent on me as a human being um, and not on Christ in me, that Christ has come to dwell in my heart through faith and that there's he's he's fully God that is saving me and working through me. I mean it's it's it it really affects our our life in God. Yeah. And and you see this even being reasoned out by mm-hmm. the disciples of course as I said in 1 John 4:1 mm-hmm. where John cautions people that this is how you're going to know what true teaching is that any it, it well witnessing to the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh this is how you um test the spirits. So even even inherent to the conversation that the apostles are happen, having and teaching their people is they're saying, here, we've got to think rightly about who Jesus is because there's implications towards how we live our life and, and the impact of that. So it, it's not even just us saying that. I think that's consistent with Scripture. The Scripture says that as well. Um, so right, it, right. it's always important to put that in, in the right context. I absolutely agree on the pushback. I was pushing back on that too, Ron, because it does make a, a pretty big difference in terms of how we view, uh, not even just how we think about Jesus, but how we view salvation and our mission in this world. Um <clears throat> You know, through that lens of escapism or redemption, and and uh, so there's a lot of implications to it. I and I think right. it's 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 very true today. Right. So, Josh Hoffert, you're gonna you're gonna tackle a pretty serious <laughs> theological debate when it comes to Christology today. Could you give us a little review of what we've just some different Christologies and and, and Christological heresies that we've encountered up to this point? Maybe kind of set the stage for us. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, we we the the first Christological errors we see are docetism and Gnosticism. They're kind of cousins of each other, if not directly related. Where Jesus wasn't really a uh, he wasn't really an enfleshed individual. He was just a disembodied spirit, and and it it, it sounds to me a lot like what you find in. Um, the uh the some of the hindu mythology where you have their holy man appearing mm-hmm. in a cave and then walking out of a cave and it's kind of that thought behind jesus he just appeared one day and started teaching um mm-hmm. and, and so that's dealt with in the early church there's uh, adoptionism um which are, are a broader label of course for uh, many different heretical notions that jesus was a good man that was adopted the holy spirit comes and essentially makes him divine in that moment and mm-hmm. uh and so we we worked through that uh ron brought that up we've talked through some of that see, stuff you have the broader label of modalism which is a bunch of different functions within or different distinctions within modalism modalism is another one that's actually prevalent today as well and that's that that uh, there's not really three um distinctions within the trinity father son and holy spirit are just uh different forms that god appears in and so there's less personal personality to each one of the individual manifestations. It's just, um, it's just well, you know, Jesus was just another form that the Father, that God appeared in, and the Father's just right. another form. And right, it's like masks. So no, no, so, so no distinction yeah, masks, yeah. between the Father and the yes. Son. It's it's yes. it's the Father is God and the Son is God. But the, the when Jesus is walking the earth, that's. That's God right there. That's where he is. That's that's how he's manifesting himself, and that there's yeah. no there's no distinction between the Father and the Son. 
Yeah, exactly. Yes. And and that has problems as well. I mean, just simply reading scripture, you kind of got to jump through hoops at the baptism of Jesus to to uh, explain away that one when you've got all three mm-hmm. members of the Trinity seeing seen there or um, that Jesus is praying to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it, it just it just creates inconsistencies within the personhood of Jesus and how he appeared to the disciples. So, um, so there's problems with that. Uh, Arianism, which we dealt with quite strong, quite quite deeply at, in the episode two, uh, two episodes ago, episode five, which is the fact that uh, Jesus is a he's on the created side of the distinction. God as uncreated, uh, no other being is uncreated. But Jesus is created, and so you kind of you remove Jesus from that place of full deity. He's really essentially somewhere within the realm of pagan mythology, um, where he's created as a being that creates everything. And uh, and so you know the Arians were trying to to emphasize the godness of the Father and preserve that. And so it wasn't necessarily that they were trying to be nefarious, um, although there's there. You know, it's funny when you read through some of this history how violent people tend to get compared to today. Because um, you've got some some riots that happen over these. I, sometimes I wish people would argue as strongly about these things today, or care as strongly as they did. But but maybe not quite care as strongly as good. Maybe yeah. not argue yes. as care as strongly. Yeah, yeah, care as strongly. Yeah, we don't we don't want people being dragged out of churches and beaten to death. Because um, that but kind of the, stuff did happen, but the occasional heretic punched in the face is okay. That's that's. I okay. mean, is that yeah, all right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on which side you think the heretic lands. Only if on, it's so. Santa. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, if if YouTube is our litmus test for who's a heretic or not, then everybody's getting punched in the face. Indeed. Um, yes. Fair enough. So <laughs> all of us will probably at some point be punched in the face as well. Um, uh, and then last week we dealt with Apollinarianism, um, and uh, we had Matthew Esquivel give us the greatest joke in Remnant Radio history, that oh, it's mind. called Apollinarianism <laughs> because it's appalling. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone LOL'd that in the comments, but <laughs> if so, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and essentially saying that there was, he was, he, the godness of Jesus um, took over the humanity of Jesus. There wasn't really a human distinction within him or human nature within him. It's, and it really had to do with his mind, uh, that higher rational portion of humanity. So, Josh, so we worked that, through... Go ahead. What I was just yeah, going to say, so this kind of uh, brings up a point that will flow into today's topic and, and the players in today's drama, uh, which is, like we talked about last week, Apollinarius was a staunch supporter of Athanasius, and he was a staunch right. supporter of uh, of the decisions uh, and the canons and the teachings of the Council of Nicaea, and uh, but he also serves as a warning that sometimes the cure is either just as bad or worse than the disease. Right? We can we get yes. into that sometimes in this uh, you know in, in the in the Church Fathers' history. Yeah, exactly. Well, in trying to overcorrect from the Arians. And saying Jesus is not God, you have Apollinaris going, well, he's only God, and essentially. So you've got these, you've got the, it, I mean, the pendulum swinging is a really accurate way of describing how the, mm-hmm. how the argument goes back and forth. And the church is really trying at this point to iron down and to clarify what, what it is 
one, what scripture teaches about the nature of Jesus, and then how, and two, how do we communicate that um, using language that people can simply, simply, um, you know, codified language, and what we find, of course, are things that are put together in the creeds. And, and you know, the interesting thing about the creeds, of course, not that we need to get in really in-depth about the creeds, is the creeds are only trying to, de- to distinguish um, or define very specific things. And they're not trying to define all of Christianity, and sometimes people get kind of confused about that, is they're trying to narrow down very specific things that we say about the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of Jesus, these types of things. And um, post the Nicene Creed, uh, Apollinaris was convinced that he was Orthodox, and mm-hmm. until you know he's convinced he's not, and so it's not that even even with the Nicene Creed and how um, the Nicene Creed codified our theological expectation of how we talk about the Trinity, there's still things that we needed to distinguish within that. How do we now talk about Jesus? And and then there's going to be arguments about how we talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and things like that, but today we're talking about specifically the nature of Jesus, and as as we went from um, Jesus is not Jesus is n- not a god; he's a created being. To Jesus is more god than he is human. Um, now we go to Jesus is more human than he is God, and you've got you've got uh, really what what's arising are two schools of thought within um, within. Uh, Christianity at this point, and and two two real places where you know, for lack of a better, this is probably not the right term, but for lack of a better term, where power was centralized in the sense of influence, um, and 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 really, it comes down to a, a it's coming down to a showdown between these two these two schools of thought, these two places of influence, um, Constantinople and the anti uh, Antiochian. Um, approach to Christology and Alexandria, and the approach t- um, that's defined by the bishops in Alexandria, and so you're you're starting to get this this back and forth, and you know we're no longer saying Jesus isn't God, but now what do we mean when we say uh, Jesus is fully God or fully man? And so one of the things I said mm-hmm. to my friend in the conversation was, um, you know, I said, well, you know how you can so easily say Jesus was fully God and fully man? And this person said, yes. I said, well, that's because of this. That's because of these arguments. You, you mm-hmm. can easily come to that conclusion because other people have reasoned through it. And you've, right. been, handed, you've been handed that understanding because, of 15, because 1,500 years ago, people cared passionately about this and tried to find some some semblance of agreement. And, uh, you know, that's where I, I like where we eventually end up, um, you know, at the end of our episode today, where we'll eventually end up where Cyril is still alive and he's tried to navigate the waters between the two, um, the two, the theological divide there. But, you know, in, in our next episode, we will talk about how that kind of fell apart too. So, right. Um, right. Yeah. So anyway, so to get down to it, I think we can move on to some of the, some of the history of it. Are you guys good with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where, Tell where us does the this, main players. Tell where us what's does this bring on. us? Yeah. So in in the early fifth century, you had uh, two the two essential players we said were Nestorius and Cyril. Nestorius was the bishop of Constantinople, 
Um, and, uh, and he, he was not a whole lot is known about his background, but he was elected to the, as the Bishop in, uh, 428 and Nestorius comes into his position and he's, he's basically a wrecking ball mm-hmm. and, uh, he doesn't really have a deft touch when it comes to the, the being the Bishop of Constantinople required a um a civil uh a civil focus because you were going to be dealing with arguments within the city with different factions within the city different christian factions within the city different political factions within the city it's the and imperial the story, city it is right, it is right, the imperial city this right. is an important so, this is the important right. city in the empire so you have an emperor living here that wants to maintain unity in his empire yes <laughs> you know? and yeah. so the and i i you know with Constantinople and uh, in, in the Council of Nicaea, or I'm sorry, the Council of Constantinople in 381, which uh, which uh, we talked about, um, I guess what a couple of weeks ago now, um, that uh, um, some last week, but um, Constantinople was named second in primacy to Rome, you know, <laughs> at this council, which was a huge deal, and so you have um, Nestorius is just in this very influential position here. Um, so anyway, Josh should continue on, but I, I think that's, that's yes. important. Incredibly important. As well. Yeah. In- mm-hmm. Incredibly important because mm-hmm. it is true that, and, and he, his traffic with, uh, the, the bishops and the theologians that he's bringing in are largely coming from Antioch, which is where the, the significant, uh, school of Christian thought had developed the Antiochian position. Um, and so we'll get into that in a little bit, but Nestorius comes in and uh he's he's um you know it's kind of like uh uh a holiness movement type of thing where he's trying to he's got a very hard line when it comes to uh, ascetical practice um what the spiritual life should look like um and and a couple of the first things he does he shuts down within a couple years he shuts down the last Aryan church in the city which really angered a bunch of people because of the way he did it um, he didn't have a deft hand with it. He didn't try and come in and um, uh, deal with it in a way that was, uh, you know, mutually agreed upon or that people were happy with. He just shuts it down and kicks him out. And so people got frustrated about that. And it wasn't even just the Arians that got frustrated about that. Uh, he he really alienates himself from the monks in the city. There, there's a, a significant monastic practice happening in Constantinople. And one of the things that he noticed is that these monks were working within imperial service, and he, he's of the opinion that the monks should have nothing to do with imperial service. They should be dedicating their lives to God. And so he basically says any monk that works in imperial service is, is forbidden from coming to church. And so right off the bat, his first few years of, of having taken office as a bishop, he, he alienates some of the most significant players in the city and really frustrates people. And and he's he's not necessarily trying to uh, he's not trying to tick people off. He's got a view of of um, holiness that he wants to see happen mm-hmm. uh, here. And so you know, in one sense, you can appreciate uh, what he wants to see. He wants to see reformation happen, uh, but he probably pushes too quickly for reformation to happen. And and as juxtaposed to Cyril, probably the other the if if um, Constantinople is one a. Uh, uh, Alexandria with Cyril is 1A as well. You know, it's it's in terms of 
theological importance or, or Christian importance right. is one of the highest ones up there. And he, uh, one of the things that Cyril, he, he's, he seems quite, um, I don't, he's not, doesn't seem full of himself, uh, but you know, the guy, the guy has a, a, a dramatic flair to him for sure. Uh, one of the first things that happens when he comes in, he says to the emperor when he takes office, you know, he's commissioned as the bishop, bishop and he says, uh, I love this. <laughs> give me my prince, the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you heaven as a recompense. Assist me in destroying heretics, and I will assist you in va- vanquishing the Persians. And so he's got this flair for the dramatic where he really sees his position uh, as as affecting change and moral reformation. But right, the way he right. goes about it is just so, um, he's, it lacks a deft touch. He's been called the, the hammer of heretics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, there you um, go, yes. <laughs> which, as uh, a uh, scholar J.N.D. Kelly points out, it's it's just odd that, you know, he he's called that and then he is you know, tried as a heretic and condemned as one right. later on. So that doesn't work out think, so well for Nestorius. I think they call that what goes around comes around. Oh man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, he gets a, he gets a bit of a bad rap. One of the uh, historical documents, um, Socrates Scholasticus is writing about him and he just says, you know, he just seemed uneducated. That's ba- that was basically Socrates's perspective. And, and he's going through some of what Nestorius has written and he said, it doesn't seem like he understands, and we're going to get into the, the nitty gritty of why, but this, this argument that uh, arises over the term Theotokos, uh, which has to do with Mary, um, it doesn't seem that Nestorius is aware that the earlier fathers are perfectly fine with this term. That's Socrates' take of this. Not Socrates, the mm-hmm. philosopher, but the church historian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he's, his critique is that, Nestorius is not a bad man. He just doesn't understand what's going on here, and he's uneducated mm-hmm. in the sense of um, the broader scope of what we've what what right. has already right. been part of Christian tradition. Right now, Josh, I know you're going to say more on this later, but that that term Theotokos is so significant to this whole debate. It's really what sparks off this whole thing. Yes. Um, could you just in a in a sentence or two? I know you're going to go into more detail later, but uh, just in a sentence or two, just describe for us what. What is Theotokos? Why was that such a? How did? Why was that such a controversial term? Yeah, it well, it wasn't really all that controversial until um, Nestorius comes in and makes it controversial. Right. Actually, not even right. Nestorius. It was pretty. Not even it was a very popular term. Yes, yeah, not. It's not even Nestorius that introduces the whole thing. It's his friend that introduces the whole thing. Um, but the the term Theotokos means mother of God, and mm-hmm. it becomes controversial to. Uh, Nestorius and the the couple of guys he has come in and immediately start teaching um, that this term is problematic. And it's referring to Mary as the mother of God because Jesus was fully God. And so we've ironed that out mm-hmm. now after the Nicene Creed. And so we can all agree that mother uh, Mary is a mother of God. And so well, that's and, the... And, and not, not just mother of God, although we know what that term means, but specifically... Uh, bearer, as yes, in yes, yes, bear, bearer in her womb of God. So, right, so right, right, Theotokos right. is a term of of reverence to Mary. Yes, but it's also a Christological statement, right? Yes, right. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So Nestorius's foil in all of this, uh, as you've mentioned, is Cyril of Alexandria, and so uh, would love for you to kind of introduce us to him and say more about him. Uh, but first, uh, we'd hear a word from our sponsor. 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, if you were to read that in Greek, you would know that Paul is not saying that you individually are the temple, but that you plural, that you all, that you guys make up the temple in which God's spirit dwells. Paul is making an appeal to the unity of church that we collectively make up the dwelling place of God's spirit. This is one of many places in the New Testament where we really can miss something if we're just reading it in English. With Kairos Classroom, you can learn Greek. Join a real teacher and real classmates in a live online classroom and learn how to read and study the New Testament in its original language. Real learning happens in community. Sign up for a class right now. Welcome back. Uh, so, Josh, we have gotten a good introduction from you on uh, Nestorius. Uh, now, tell us about his uh, rival uh, in this conflict, Cyril. Yeah, Cyril. Uh, Cyril is the uh, eventual bishop of Alexandria. Cyril is is taken in by his uncle, who's one of the main church leaders in Alexandria, at the age of twelve, and he's taught uh, from. Of all things pertaining to theology and church, and and you know, it receives some of the best education that he possibly can. So he's essentially serving within the church in Alexandria um, uh, from the age of twelve on. And Alexandria, as we've said, is one of the most happening places in all of Christendom at this point. And um, he's he's very quickly ordained as a reader within the church or lector within the church. And um, by the time he's thirty four. Cyril is elected, you, I mean, the people loved Cyril. He's elected as a bishop of Alexandria um, by the time he's 34. So he is to the foil of Nestorius uh, from a, at, at a, I mean, I'm 40 right now. To, to be 34, and obviously life expectancy was a little bit different back then, but to be 34 and the bishop of one of the most, one of the most influential seats in all of the kingdom, um, that's a pretty big deal. And Cyril as well has a bit of a flair for the dramatic, but he's got a much defter touch in how he deals with the people. Then Nestorius just comes in and says, you're all going to change and be the way that I want you to be. You know, monks, stop doing this. Get in line. Uh, Cyril has a bit of a defter approach to, um, to the issues at hand. And the city, when he comes in to, as the bishop at 412, this is 412 uh, AD when he comes in, um, and so he's he's fairly well established by the time Nestorius comes around. And uh, Cyril, he didn't really. I mean, he was writing doctrinal treatises and and scripture studies and and things of this nature. But I mean, his real contribution to theology comes. I mean, you can almost say Nestorius brought the best out of him um, in the sense of his theological contribution, uh, because what he wrote before nobody really nobody really. Not that people don't study it, but it's not a matter of theological importance that gives us language to talk about the nature of Christ. Um, but because of Nestorius, he really had to double down on it. Um, so he's, he is, at one point, um, he's, he's seen as, uh, well, put it this way, in, in growing up in North America, um, the way that we see, I, I'm, I'm, I live in Canada, as you guys may know, I'm an American by 
uh, by birth, and I know that the uh, the right to protest is a deeply held American belief, and um, and when we see protests. And we see things like they were protesting in the city in Alexandria, which was happening in the first few years uh, as Cyril came into power. Um, protests usually came down to mob violence. And um, there's, there is at one point early on in his tenure in the city, uh, one of the Neoplatonist teachers is uh, stirred up a controversy. Mob violence comes against, drags her uh, um, into a church, not out of a church, drags this Neoplatonist teacher uh, into a church and kills her. And that those kind of things were not um, uncommon um, to have that happen. Not necessarily mm. always happening in a church, but to see mob violence happening in a city that... Uh, so Cyril's, Cyril comes into power when there's a number of uh, issues, um, lots of controversy in the city. He's actually at one point pictured with the mob protesting against things in the city so um but one of the things he does that i i love how uh subtle his response to the issues in the in the area were is you had one of the well-known pagan temples in uh in in the region not in constantinople but in the region um that was a place of healing so they had uh pagan priests that you would come to and they would offer you rites and you would you would continue to worship the pagan gods and hopefully receive healing. So what, what Cyril does is he recognizes the problem because he wants people who have converted to Christianity to remain Christian and not mingle with pagan belief. So he, right down the street, sets up a church and uh, starts enacting healing services, basically, you know, for lack of a better term, um, and and slowly begins to win people to Christianity, uh, and and preserve the people that are Christian in the region because now they don't need to go to the pagan temple; they go right down the street to the small church that was really just adjacent to the temple, and uh, we can get prayed for healing from there. And so he's he's looking at how do I deal with these situations from a much more nuanced perspective than someone like Nestorius was, and because of that, that actually though though. It doesn't seem important at its outset. It actually becomes incredibly important because, uh, realistically, Cyril Cyril has the support of many more people than Nestorius does when it comes down to to the. I mean, Cyril has the support of Scripture, I think, as well, but he also has the support of the people. Um, and um, uh, so, go ahead. So, Someone's in a. Well, something. we've got right, right. So we've. This is a really helpful background here because the again the the episcopal seats uh, or sees um, seats sees um, of of Antioch and Alexandria extremely prominent influential I mean these guys so these in their positions they oversee a whole lot of churches here um, and they get into this hot theological debate um, about who is Jesus so kind of I think what is What's kind of their thinking behind, you know, what 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 kind of initiates this conflict, and what are the what are the theological issues at stake in this debate here? Yeah, well, the the theological issues at stake are summed up in the in the basic approaches of um, the Antiochian school 
and the Alexandrian school. So Nestorius, his approach is he, wanting to preserve the humanity of Jesus, that he was tempted, um, that he died, he suffered, that all these mm-hmm. things happened. But because, they, because it was so important to them, this term that we don't really necessarily talk about today is the term impassable. The, probably the best approximation mm-hmm. we apply to God today is immutable, Im- the immutability of God. Um, but he's he's unchanging. That nothing. But impassable means more than just immutable. Impassable right, means like, not 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 suffering, not not being moved by anything, not being not being changed by anything. Impass in, immutable just means um, nothing is different about him today than it was yesterday. Impassable is a much deeper term than that. You were going to say, Matthew? Right. No, no, no. I think I think that's good. Impassable literally would be in, immovable. Or in, especially in terms of suffering, that there's nothing that yes. disturbs the eternal abiding joy in which God, <laughs> which God will forever live. You know, it's it's yes. uh, it's undisturbed, uninterrupted, and but also in the sense of, of suffering that God, because He's God, He can't He can't die on a cross. He can't he, you can't kill God. He's God. You know, He can't feel pain. You know, like we can feel pain, and He can't be in what's real important to this debate is he can't be born like Matthew can. He can't come out of the womb of a, of a woman, you know, and uh, be carried in her for five months and then, and then, and then come out of her. He's God, you know, only, only a human being can do that. So um, no, I think there's a really important point you're making here about impassibility and Astorius. He wanted to make sure that was preserved. Yeah. You know, when we talk about God. And and to his credit, as uh, over against the the debate that had rang in the previous century with Apollinarius, is he wanted to preserve the humanity as well as the the godness of Jesus, right, and the right. the way he hypothesized that was the pro- the way he hypothesized that happening was the problem, and essentially the way he talks about it is it sounds like you have two persons within the one person. And so the, mm-hmm. the, the thing Cyril's connect, concerned about with Nestorius is that he's redigging up this idea that there's two sons. There's a son of man and a son of God within Jesus, and they're separate and distinct, and they're only passively connected. And mm-hmm. that's a problem for Cyril, and that's a problem for the Alexandrian position, because the Alexandrian position emphasized the unity of, uh, of nature between the godness of Jesus and the humanness of Jesus, which was an incredibly important point to theirs for the whole issue of redemption. Because if God, if Jesus being God doesn't assume everything that it means to be human, then nothing within us can be transformed by his assumption. And so Cyril, Cyril's famous for saying uh, what he was by nature, we become by grace. And so the very fact of the union between the two natures, that isn't just a simple connection, that isn't a agreement of wills between the two, that isn't a moral connection between the two, um, the, the God part of Jesus and the human part of Jesus, but is a real actual union of natures, um, then, then you've just basically exploded all of the all of the redemptive thinking of the Alexandrian theological position. And so right. Cyril so, looks at what Nestorius says, and he finds that heretical. But Nestorius looks at what Cyril says and says, you've just destroyed the divinity of Christ. Of Christ. How can you say this? Right. So what, what uh, maybe another way to put it is that they're both are concerned to understand and to articulate uh, John one fourteen, the Word became flesh. Yes, you know the you know, and of course John one one that the Word 
was with God, the Word was God. <laughs> you know, um, yes. in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So you got John one, John one one through three, John one fourteen, the Word became flesh. So and then the Creed, the Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. So, so the Nicene Creed, that first phrase is, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also affirming that um, that he's fully God, that he's truly God as the Father is God. Yet for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, was yeah. made man. Um, and so they're, they're both trying to um, affirm these things and to... And to articulate them. And so what it sounds like, maybe another way to put it is Nestorius, he's in an effort to preserve deeply that Jesus has everything pertaining to divinity, you know, and everything pertaining to humanity, um, unified, joined together. Um, and that's that's where, you know, even that language, you know, is it's there's has implications there, but that there's that we have one Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that pertains to God, everything that pertains to human. Um, but Cyril's concern is, Nestorius, when you talk about this divine nature and this human nature in Christ, it sounds like we've got we got two people going on here. Right. That um, we see one Christ, but really on the inside, what we have is is God or the eternal Word of God, and then we have this human being, Jesus. Um, we see Christ. But really, on the inside is the Word of God, and then the man Jesus. So, in um, other so words, yeah. So, in other words, it's as if okay, we're talking about two natures, but we're also talking about two persons. Like we can right, only have right. one. We can only have one nature per person, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, if, right. Uh, Nestorius. Right. So Matthew, view, Matthew's Matthew's a human being with a human nature. There's only you know. I don't have two human natures. I have one human nature. There's one Matthew, you know. So yeah. I don't. I don't have a Matthew nature and then an animal nature. You know, I just have a Matthew or a human nature. Yeah, but wh- this, which had been. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say. You know that. Now we're getting into these terms, right? I, mm. I, I mean, really, to understand this debate, we kind of have to familiarize ourselves with a with a whole new lexicon of terminology that's that's very unfamiliar to us. Uh, not only as modern Western Christians, but as uh, primarily English speakers. Uh, but there's a lot of important terminology that's being debated and at stake here, isn't there? Yeah, there, there, yeah, there really is. <laughs> there really is. Um, the and and again, it's it's it is because the the division between the thought processes are not Cyril and Nestorius represent a broader approach not just their individual approach. And that's important to understand, is that Nestorius is not just arguing, uh, well, this is what I think. And Cyril's arguing, well, this is what I think. They represent the broader, the broader teaching of, a, of a, quite a vast number of people. And right. uh, so when, when it comes down to the council, of course, you have Nestorius having 43 bishops with him and Cyril having 200. And, and so these people are all... You know, it's not that they agree on every single point, but they largely are supportive of the position that each one is arguing, and um, and so they they really see themselves representing something. And this is that Alexandrian school that Cyril represents, and the Antiochian school uh, that Nestorius represents, which which really is, as we've just said, the debate was right there between two natures, passably connected, 
um, two natures united in the person of Jesus. And, uh, and the way that Nestorius just happened to talk about it in a way that really drove the Alexandrians crazy. And so it's not so much that all of the Antiochian bishops would agree perfectly with how Nestorius talked about it, but he does represent that style of thinking. And it seems mm-hmm. to me, in, in pulling it apart, that what Nestorius is concerned about is, pre- is obviously preserving the humanity of Jesus, as we said, but Cyril seems to talk about the assumption of humanity within, within the person of Jesus more ontologically about the, about the flesh of Jesus, that, that he's talking about Jesus assuming humanity as opposed to Jesus having a, a human nature. He's not saying that Jesus doesn't have a human nature, but he's concerned with how that divine essence or divine nature within Jesus really impacts all of humanity in the assumption of humanity. And, mm-hmm. and so he looks at, when he talks about the assumption of humanity, he's almost talking in more of ontological terms about humanity because God, by the very fact of the assumption, is redeeming humanity. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to be the debate or the approach that the Antiochians have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of these terms that really get thrown out that, um, that it, it's, it's again, it, it, part of it seems like regional arguments about how we define different terms. You know, you're in, you're in, um, uh, I was having a conversation with people today over the different, this is going to be silly, but the difference between, uh, countries, if you're wearing sandals or flip-flops or a thong and all of those, <laughs> those terms can mean the same thing to different people, right? And different things to different people. So <laughs> we want to make careful. sure we know what we're talking about when John exactly. the Baptist was saying, I'm unworthy to untie the thong of Jesus. Yeah, you know? exactly. So. Or, or if I say to Matthew, hey, we're going to go to the beach, make sure you wear your thong uh, or your thongs. You know, you just got to be figure out what we're talking about here, you know. So. Whoa. <laughs> I think we should rein this in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I shouldn't have thrown. So I, words I'll, matter. You know? Yes. Words matter and, and how yeah. they're used in a particular uh, in a particular area really matter as well. And so you've got four four words that I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation of. So, Matt, you, as our resident Greek scholar, you can... Oh, not um, a Greek scholar. The <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, four words that really start to take on nuances of meaning, and that's prosopon. Um, prosopon. Uh, meaning, mm-hmm. Prosopon, okay, there we go. Meaning mm-hmm. face or yeah, mask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got hypostasis. Um, mm-hmm. which is, which is similar to the face mask thing, but it, 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 in, it, it, um, it emphasizes the individual, um, what, what a person is or who a person is. Right. Uh, right. A, an individual, you know, the, some of these, these words may not be helpful to folks, but, uh, individual subsistence that there is a, there's, there's an, and again, the language is, 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 is difficult. You have the word, um, you have these words here about hypothesis. What um, that was a really loose term, you know. Even in the in biblical writing, you know, we we see it occur in the New Testament, but it's understood very differently in Cyril and Nestorius's day than it is in in the New Testament. So, um, hypothesis was one of those that was a little difficult to nail down. Do we? Um, but what it's what it most conveyed by this time, especially after these debates, and people decided what how are we going to understand these terms? Hypothesis. To, to Josh's point, is that you've got an individual person um, here um, going on with hypothesis, and, and that's essentially 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, it's helpful for me, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not. I haven't taken Greek classes, although um, my dad, my dad is a classical language scholar. That was his. That's his degree, and so he taught us Latin when I was young. But that doesn't help with Greek terms. Um, the and then the two other terms is and and again, Matt, I'm going to butcher this one because there's a real bad way of saying this one. Physis. <laughs> I want to say phys. I'm just going to say physis. I know that's not okay. how you pronounce I'd say it. Phusis, but uh, phusis. Okay, phusis. we don't want to say yeah. feces. Yeah. That's <laughs> what we're trying to avoid. But uh. yeah, we're we're really talking about and you guys and called. Oh my You God, guys say that. I've got dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've got three kids, okay? I'm a dad. I get I know, it. Right? I know. <laughs> Someone's going to go tell their buddy, hey, what was Raymond about today? They were talking about thongs yeah. and feces. Yeah, that's know? right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, and so we've got phusis and usia, those two mm-hmm. uh, being mm-hmm. nature or essence, you know, uh, phusis being nature and usia being essence. And, and they, they are hotly debated, but essentially over time, um, start to take on some of the same some of the same meaning, and those are important for um, uh, for the ongoing debate and what what eventually what Cyril actually um, agrees upon with the uh, with the Antiochian uh, bishop John uh, John right, of Antioch. Right, right. And I think what's important to say about these things too is that like with with Fusus and Usia that they they come to be ref- they come to be understood as a concrete reality. And so that's not necessarily something personified, so to say. Whereas a hypostasis or a prosopon, you know, you've got um, you've you've got you know in the Trinity you have it's one God but three hypostases. You know, it's it's three or in English we the best word we come up with is three persons. Um, um, in with but when it comes to Fusus and Usia, that there's one divine nature. There's one divine Usia. Or essence, um, but three hypostases, um, three prosopa, and so that's that's how it's used in a trinitarian form. But um, but what's what I think is important to talk about these terms is this this was what caused a lot of the conflict because there was these these were a little loose they weren't they weren't so clearly defined and understood mm-hmm. and articulated in the same way. So um, that will be part of the the resolution as well. How do yeah. we understand these terms and how are we going to use these terms when it pertains to the divinity to, to God when yeah. it pertains to um, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, so with with mm-hmm. all with all that said, let's get into the actual conflict. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, we put we put all the the legs around it. Now here's the actual conflict. What it comes down mm-hmm. to, because without without of course painting the picture, there would be difficult to understand what actually happened. So uh, Nestorius, in uh, a couple years after, right, you know, actually shortly after um, becoming the bishop, he invites his friends uh, to come from Antioch to come and uh, give a series of lectures in the city and the 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 type of language that they used were the kind of language that and you can correct me Matt if I'm wrong but it would have been a two uh, uh prosopon or two hypostasis or uh, hypostasis sorry it would be that kind of language that they're using that's really turning people off um right off the bat yeah that's that what they didn't want to say <laughs> yes exactly and that mm-hmm. and that that is what they ended up saying um and and so everybody gets frustrated <laughs> People are starting to uh, question that. And Nestorius has a friend of his named Anastasius come in as a man he greatly respects. He comes into Constantinople, and he is preaching in the church, and he says this. This is the statement uh, that's recorded in history, you know. 
no one liked Anastasius afterwards. So uh, it says this, let no one call Mary Theotokos. Mary uh, was not, for Mary was but a woman, and it is impossible that God should be born of a woman. That phrase is what sets the whole thing off. That gets everybody in an uproar because they'd been taught that Mary is the uh, Theotokos and the she's the God bearer. There's in my notes it says God bearer right there. Um, yeah, the uh, she is that, and how can you say not? Because that means you're saying that Jesus is not God if she's not the God bearer. And so they've been right. taught this. This is what's flown from Nicaea, and so the people begin to really, really resist what Nestorius and his friend Anastasius and the uh, frankly the other teachers were bringing. And so this sets the whole controversy in motion. Um, and he was, he was, Nestorius was incredibly semantic and he drove people crazy in how he taught in how he spoke. Uh, one of the things he liked to say was, um, uh, oh, what's the phrase? I don't have it right in front of me. Um, uh, uh, strictly speaking, that's right. Strictly mm-hmm. speaking. That was his favorite phrase to use. And so mm-hmm. um, what, what he would go through and he'd argue, strictly speaking, if, if Jesus is God, strictly speaking. So he uses this language all the time. So the people at one point, because they're so frustrated and there's such an uproar in the city over how these people are teaching, the people show up with placards. They, they're, you know, the right to protest. These are good Americans. They've got their, their signs and they're standing there calling him a heretic. And the signs say this. If Mary is not, strictly speaking, the mother of God, then Jesus, her son, is not, strictly speaking, God. Um, which, I, you know, I think it's, it's a great dig at Nestorius. Um, and and this, is, this is the, the controversy that's being stirred up is over this, this term. And so the, the, the deeper controversy is over the nature of Jesus and how we see that divine human uh, union, as we've talked about, but it starts with this: the the uh, you know the the way that the way that Nestorius saw the divide between the human the humanity of Jesus and the divi- the divinity of Jesus um, was the reason why he didn't like this term at all. So he says, if you say um, Theotokos, then you also have to say, and I don't, I'm not sure what the actual Greek term is. But you can, he said, you can say God bearer all you want, as long as you also say man bearer. And then he said, actually, let's just throw both of those out and let's just say Christ bearer. And, um, and so he thought he was proposing a solution, but that just riled the people all up all over again. Right, so, right, right. So Cyril starts sending, Cyril sends Nestorius a letter um, telling him, hey, you know what? You should probably stop this. This is, this is problematic. And, um, and there's, there's some talk in the letters that Cyril writes to Nestorius about bringing Nestorius to Alexandria to investigate his, theolo- his theology. So um, this is where, as I said earlier in our episode, that this is um, cl- 101, class 101 on how not to do a debate. Nestorius' response to Cyril is, well, fine, if you're going to call me to your city, I'm going to call you to my city. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, take, he doesn't take Cyril seriously at all. And he, he firmly thinks that he is, he is completely in the right and Cyril's in the wrong. And, and what really transpires from this point on seems like a power struggle. On, on one level, there's definitely a political aspect to this. Oh, um, absolutely. absolutely, because yeah. Nestorius yeah. is the bishop of Constantinople, the, right. the, the right. imperial city, and already in, in an ecumenical council, uh, Constantinople has been declared second only to Rome. And so uh, 
Nestor- I mean, all theology aside, for Nestorius to get that kind of a threat from the Bishop of Alexandria, who is uh, beneath him politically in rank, um, strictly speaking, probably got his uh, hackles up a little bit. Right. Yes. So we've yeah. So we've got we've got this controversy that's that's kicked off because of the term Theotokos that Mary is the God bearer, which was already popular, but Nestorius wants to make sure that we're understanding that in a proper way and prefers the term Christo Christotokos Christ bearer. That's hard to say. Um, but um, and so letter exchange with with Cyril Nestorius because it sounds like Nestorius' solution is denying the divinity of Christ and or proposing that there's that there are two sons that you've got the son of God the eternal right. word and then you've got the human being Jesus so how's this how's this how's this settled how what is what is the resolution to this yeah what is there a resolution to it that's really yeah the is there a resolution yeah what was <laughs> yes. the attempted resolution <laughs> well you know I, it's it's this is um, Cyril Cyril stirs the controversy just as much in how he responds to Nestorius. At one point, he writes to Nestorius. And so, and so th- things start to escalate to the point where something's going to need to be done. So he mm-hmm. writes and he says, he, he uses phrases in his writing to Nestorius like, God wept, God died, God sat upon the virgin's lap and suckled. These things drive the Antiochians crazy. Um, because they're going, how can you say that? God's impassable. He can't, he can't, you can't see him as weeping. You can't see him as dying. You can't see him as doing these things. And so um, it all comes down to a, um, the, they both appeal to the Pope, Pope Celestine, and to the Emperor, Theodosius II. And Celestine calls a synod in Rome in 431, and he rules against Nestorius and rules in favor of the title uh, Theotokos. And, um, and then he requires Nestorius to amend his teaching. You know, this happens quite quickly. Uh, he requires that Nestorius amends his teaching, and he tasks Cyril with telling Nestorius that you need to amend your teaching. So Cyril drafts 12, and 12 what are called the 12 anathemas, which mm-hmm. are, they address in a, f- I mean, he basically spans all the reasons that he's going to, all the things he's going to get Nestorius to agree to. And so mm-hmm. Celestine's concerned about this term Theotokos, and um, Cyril is concerned about the Christology of Nestorius. And so he goes through and he writes out these 12 anathemas um, and says, uh, you know, things like, first, we're going to assert that Mary is uh, the Theotokos, um, that we're going to talk about how the word is united hypostatically to the flesh, not two sons, but one. Uh, so he goes through all, all 12 of these anathemas and... Um, and, and says, Nestorius, you need to sign this, or basically you're kicked out. And um, Nestorius doesn't even respond because he's already appealed to the emperor at this point. And so he, he just ignores um, uh, Cyril's anathemas. And what, what it comes down to then is uh, Nestorius appeals, and uh, Theodosius calls a general council in 431 in Ephesus, and this is where we get the Council of Ephesus. So now, when you say um, general council, that's just another term for ecumenical, right? So if we we say general council, we say ecumenical council. It's the same thing, right? Right. Yes. Um, and so the it brings all of the bishops together, 
and what happens is um, Cyril has about 200 bishops that support him in this whole thing. And they show up, and they're ready, to, they're ready and raring to go. Nestorius is there in the city, but his group of Antiochian bishops that are going to support him, most notably one of Cyril's friends, John of Antioch, um, has, has delayed in coming. And so no one quite knows. I, I don't even think in all the studying I, and preparation I did for this, I don't even think anybody knows still why John of Antioch didn't show up on time. Maybe it was a difficult, a difficult trek. There's lots of different um, uh, hypotheses as to why. But John and the Antiochian bishops are late. And a week passes, two weeks pass, and Cyril begins to get suspicious that John and his friends are re- don't want to show up because they don't want to pass judgment on Nestorius. And so they're purposely avoiding showing up. Delay so, tactics. <laughs> yes, the delay tactics, exactly. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, it's maybe it'll all go away. It's like when your kids are screaming in the in the room and you're like, maybe if I don't say anything, this will go away and it never does. Um anyway, so so Cyril decides we're just gonna call the council and and start this argument. And uh the council is called and they ha- they call Nestorius. Nestorius says this to the council. Um uh, I cannot, he says, I cannot term him God who is two and three months old. I am therefore clear of your blood and shall in future come among you no more. And Nestorius leaves the council. He won't, he won't be tried. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a full stop judgment against Nestorius. There's no argument. They read out, uh, they read out the Nicene Creed. They read out Cyril's letters and they go, yep, Cyril, you're right. Nestorius is wrong. And they depose, um, they depose uh, Nestorius. So shortly thereafter, um, the Antiochian bishops show up and John of Antioch is frustrated. All of them are frustrated with how Nestorius has been treated and they see this as a great affront, especially to their theological position because there was no actual debate happening. So they decide we're going to convene our own council. So they convene their own council and they depose Cyril and refute all 12 of his anathemas. (laughs) So 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 Cyril holds his council, judges in his own favor, and then the Antiochians show up and they're like, well... You know, kind of, I was going to say a word, but maybe we shouldn't say that. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, just kind of gives them a very unpolite sign in their culture, whatever that might have yes. been. <laughs> but uh, And says, we're going to hold our own council and we're going to refute everything Cyril did. We're going to judge in our favor. <laughs> you know? Yes, <So>. yes. <laughs> and, and so then, you know, now you've got this argument, like whose council actually stands. And so right. both of them go to the, to the emperor, to Theodosius. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, you know, obviously Cyril goes, Nestorius is bad. Nestorius goes, Cyril's bad. And Theodosius, I love Theodosius. He's my favorite emperor in this time. Because he goes, you guys are both bad. He, he, he upholds the conviction of both councils. Probably, now, you know, hypothetically, we'll never know. But probably because this is a really charged conversation at this point. This isn't even a conversation. This is very charged. The Antiochians are really upset about what Cyril and the Alexandrian bishops have done to Nestorius, and Cyril and the Alexandrians are completely concerned, and rightfully so, concerned about the theological um, standings of Nestorius and the Antiochian bishops. So this is a very charged atmosphere and environment at this point. So Theodosius says, you guys are all in trouble, and, and he upholds the, de- the deposing of Cyril, and he upholds the deposing of Nestorius. The only reason Cyril really doesn't get deposed is because so many people support Cyril at this point. And this is where it comes into play with how alienated 
or how much Nestorius had alienated his support in Constantinople and how much Cyril had fostered support in the city of Alexandria because he, the people are ready to riot over Cyril being deposed. Mm-hmm. Right. They're very, they love Cyril. Right. Interesting historical note, too, that where the Council of Ephesus is where this takes place, and it happens at a church. I, I don't remember if the, the name of the church is like is the Church of Mary or something like that, but it's, it's, it's where, where Mary and devotion to Mary was very deeply cherished. Right, you know, right. At this time. And so Nestorius, you know, he, he wanted the council held. Um, I think he wanted to held in Constantinople, but when the emperor calls it to Ephesus, he's like, oh, great. I'm, we're holding this whole meeting at a church full uh, with a area full of people that are deeply devoted to um, to the Virgin Mary. Well, and yeah, so uh, the odds were not in his favor <laughs> in tra- many tra- ways. Tradition holds that Mary lived in Ephesus uh, with the Apostle John. Right, well, but not still alive at this time. Just to be clear, <laughs> so, no, <laughs> she wasn't. This, she wasn't the back corner, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, per- perpetual. Well, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stir up that pot. Um, yeah. The, yes, I, I almost did. I was close. Um, so, uh, yeah, and and so you know, to that point too, when Cyril's council convenes and they've deposed Nestorius, the city erupts in praise. They're they're like they're like dancing in the streets. Nestorius, the evil guy who desecrated the name of Mary, is no more. Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. a there there's a rejoicing that goes on because of it. But again, short lived because the Theodosius goes okay. Okay, guys, I am going to be punching some of these guys back into the live stream. It happened again. I, we, we keep changing uh, a little bit of stuff every single time we do one of these interviews so that we can avoid these kinds of interruptions. I apologize, guys. Uh, but there are... Okay, here we go. Everyone's coming back into the chat. We have everyone back in here. Again, uh, sorry, guys, for the interruption. Every single week, we try to make one little change trying to resolve this problem, but I'll, I'll toss it back over to you guys. Josh, where were we at? Or no, Matthew, it was, I was one of you guys talking. Uh, it was, I, think, I think it was I. Um, and, and to the point, I saw uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, his, his comment that, uh, yeah, and Cyril also had the Holy Spirit on his side. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree. I think Cyril was... Um, was largely in the right here and um, was was evident by how things played out so you've got this you've got this divide you've got um, the uh, the Antiochian bishops being they're very frustrated with the way Nestorius has been treated and you've got the Alexandrian bishops um, concerned about the 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 division of the natures within Jesus and so nobody's happy with what Theodosius has done and ostensibly what Theodosius's plan is is um, well, let's let's bring let's quell it right here where it was and and the the rhetoric that was happening and the heatedness of the debate and let's bring it everybody back and let's meet in a smaller group and and hash this out. It's probably Theodosius's plan, but it doesn't go that way because the people won't let him depose Cyril. So what he ends up doing is he he commissions the the main Antioch. He upholds Nestorius is um, is deposed, um, and he commissions John of Antioch and uh, Cyril to sit down and work out an actual formula 
that both the Alexandrians and the Antiochians can agree upon. And so they spend about two years uh, corresponding back and forth and working through the theological issues, and they come up with um, what's called the formula of union. And um, the the formula of union, um, it, it uh, Matt, if you're there and you want to add anything to this, Here go I am. for it. I'm back on. Yeah. Oh, there you <laughs> Sorry, go. I was yeah. out for a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Uh, so I was just okay. Just to recap, are, and Ron, mm-hmm. are you there too now? I heard you. I heard you, but I. Oh, you yeah, did. Okay, go ahead. If, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you continue. Right, yeah. no, no, need to, no need to repeat. Okay, so in in the formula of union, uh, Cyril makes certain um, perceived concessions to the Antiochian position, and the Antiochian John of Antioch makes certain concessions to the Alexandrian position, which is how this should have happened in the first place, is they come together and, and iron out and work it out rather than the politicalness of it and all of that. You know, one of the things that happens as, a, as another matter of historical record is um, one of the reasons that Cyril may have garnered so much favor is um, the amount of gifts that he was bestowing on all the people that were important in the city which was a very, very common thing to do. And, and in our day and age, it would seem um, a, a, a little bit controversial to send gifts to the people that were going to be deciding about your fate. Um, uh, that would be called a bribe. And, but, you know, it was a pretty common tactic in that day. But, but uh, there's still a very deep, and I'm sure you'd say this too, a very, there's a deep theological concern here. Oh, you know, absolutely. On, yes. On both sides that um this is this and I mean this is this is kind of up for debate and discussion as well, but like is this is this a purely political I'm right, I'm I'm the prince of Alexandria <laughs> and um you need to do what I say because I'm I've got a better um my my seat really has more authority than yours. Or is there a a real a genuine and a deep and an important theological matter going on here and i think what just the the intensity of these debates i just um i don't i don't, I don't see how we can say not that there's yes, you know you can right. and um to your point the formula of union and just re- repeated attempts to um to resolve this matter and um, even to this day you know we're still feeling the effects of this today but so what what happened how did the formula so we had the we had the council of ephesus in 431 that did not resolve the matter um, no. at all. Um, and so they, uh, the Antiochians, John of Antioch and the Antiochians, they held their own council. So two years later, we're, we fast forward to 433, there's another meeting called, and we have this formula of union drafted. How did that, how did that attempt to resolve the theological concern? Yeah. And, and just before I get to there, to your point, mm-hmm. it, it's the, the issue in the debate is it's a both and um, the the Christological controversy that was that was being argued is a debate that was absolutely necessary and frankly it's probably mm-hmm. one we need to have again today um, and you know if 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 we'd had more time I really wanted to hone in on some of the anathemas that Cyril talks about and how they play into some of the ways we think about Jesus today but there's just no time um, mm. and and so the debate is absolutely necessary. My problem in going through this and, and studying through it and reading it is I, 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 on some level, I want to expect more of the leaders, especially right, such, right. such important yes. men. And, and right. you know, 
not to comment too much on that, but you know that becomes a problem in church history uh, right. time and time again is the way that we see they 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 absolutely can have a valid theological point and the lifestyle they live or the or the way they go about making it I should say that not the lifestyle they live but the way they go about making it was really what kept the de- that's one of the reasons the debate kept going because of how Cyril approached Nestorius that was the Antiochians were deeply suspicious of Cyril and and deeply suspicious that Cyril was going to resurrect what they perceived to be Christological heresies as well but right. uh, but a lot of what drove their frustration was how he treated Nestorius um, right, and so right. when but Cyril is the one that's willing to make concessions is what you see in the formula of union and mm-hmm. and so the the basic formula that they put down I mean, we can read the whole formula of union um, if we want, but the basic formula they put down is um, uh, two natures, one person. And and Cyril is intent that said, to say that the two natures are indivisible, that you can't make a separation between the two of them. And and what he it's not this isn't necessarily in the formula of union, but this is really developed in Leo's tome or codified in Leo's tome anyway, which we'll talk about next week, is the communication of idioms where what you say about Jesus, the man, you can say about Jesus, the God, and what you say about Mm -hmm. Jesus, the God, you can say about Jesus, the man. And so they're starting to they're starting to work through that. So the Antiochians are happy are, you know, in one sense, they're happy because we can say there's two natures. The Alexandrians could be happy because we can say there's one person. And those those union it calls it the union um, without confusion and and that that as well as saying the the Theotokos is the terminology that we use and so it addresses those things um, very substantially so you know I'm I'm just gonna read I'm gonna read through the formula of union because it's not that long um, okay. and then we can talk about that and we'll probably need to wrap things up uh, it says this. We confess, therefore, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and a body, begotten from the ages from his Father in respect of his divinity, but likewise in these last days for us and our salvation from the Virgin Mary in respect of his manhood, consubstantial with the Father in respect of his divinity, and at the same time consubstantial with us in respect of his manhood. For a union of two natures has been accomplished. Hence we confessed one Christ, one Son, one Lord. In virtue of this conception of a union without confusion, we confess the Holy Virgin as Theotokos, because the divine word became flesh and was made man, and from the very conception united to himself the temple taken from her. As for the evangelical and apostolic statements about the Lord, we recognize that theologians employ some indifferently in view of the unity of person, but distinguish others in view of the duality of natures, applying the God-befitting ones to Christ's divinity and the humble ones to his humanity. And so because Cyril's made those concessions, he really rankles the Alexandrians. You made too much. You're letting them say different things about the different natures. And you're letting and you're giving them too much room to separate the natures, and the Antiochians remain deeply suspicious because Nestorius was ne- I mean Nestorius was supposed to recant and he never did and so eventually he was um, exiled and he spent the last the latter part of his life um, living in solitude, um, which you know having raised three children now 
kind of sounds like a blessing sometimes. But anyway, um, being able to. <laughs> You'll miss them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You'll cry that's true. when they go yeah, to college. Yeah, 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 very, yeah, that's right. We learned that from Father Ron. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah. And so with the formula of union, it doesn't. It, it addresses the Christological heresy, but it doesn't necessarily leave everybody happy. Right, and right. Event, eventually, the formula is adopted, when we, when, and we'll get to this in the Council of uh, Chalcedon next episode. The formula is adopted as, the, as orthodox theologian, theological statements, but because of how the, the, the Council of Ephesus went down, nobody's really happy with this formula. And by the time, as soon as Cyril passes away, you know that the the Alexandrian bishops do everything they can to unwork what he's done that they consider um, uh, deeply problematic. Right, right. I know we're we're already over time. I want to just want to say a couple of points here on what's just some phrases that stand out to me in this formula of union. Because again, you you have an attempt to compromise the language of the Antiochenes and the language of Cyril and the Alexandrians. So you have um, there there you see the language a lot of in respect of his divinity in respect of right. his manhood. So he's, he's begotten before the ages in respect to his divinity. He's born of the Virgin Mary in respect to his manhood, consubstantial with the father in respect to his divinity, consubstantial with us in respect to his manhood. So, so there are certain things that are true about Jesus that we say are, they're true of him. All of the statements are true, but some are true in respect to divinity his eternity, his his uncreatedness, his his oneness with the Father. But there are other things we say in respect to his humanity, the fact that he was born, that he suffered and he died. It's the same Jesus, and that's that's kind of what comes up next. Hence, we, we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord. They wanted to make sure to eliminate the Nestorian, uh, what it sounded like Nestorius was saying, I would argue at times he does, um, very much convey this language, that yeah. That there, that there's, that there's two sons going on here, and no, the formula of union ones say no, one Christ, one Son, one Lord, and this, this, uh, they, they affirm the Holy Virgin as Theotokos. So we've got, we've got the God bearer in there. So that's thumbs up, you know, <laughs> to the Alexandrians. Um, but the controversial language here is that union of two natures. For a union of two natures has been accomplished, and it, it'll go on to say a union without confusion. But that um, the two the, the the language of union of two natures is what really ticks off the Alexandrians because they're saying this is this is Nestorius here. Nestorius talked right. about a divine nature, human nature, and they the way Nestorius articulated it, articulated it made it sound like he had two hypotheses, two persons, two individual subsistences, into two individual persons, you know, going on in the inside of Jesus. Um, right. This. I think the formula of union is trying not to say that, but um, that's my that's my take on it. But that's what was so controversial: a union of two natures. The Alexandrians read this and say, "You have completely you've, you totally compromised this." So, um, yeah, and and it's not until the Tome of Leo that what does that union look like, and how does it play out, and how do we understand it? And that's largely what the Tome of Leo is about. And um, just so everybody knows. Um, when I when I first read the Tome of Leo, I was expecting something um, gigantic, and it's very short. <laughs> it's a few it's, pages, yeah. It's a few pages. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, it sounds way more epic than it actually is. Right. right. Um, and and you know one of the things one of my takeaways in terms of mm-hmm. practical application to to this whole um, debate and and again the debate's not over. 
because part two is going to come up next week um, when mm-hmm. when we find and and then the debate's still not over in the terms of practically speaking today, as you had said. This we still see the Eastern Orthodox Church um, uh, still frustrated over the Council of uh, Ephesus and then Chalcedon as well. So uh, there's been long lasting um, real real divide because of this. Um, but but just practically speaking and looking at Cyril's theological statements uh, and and really what what was what was starting to crystallize in language about Christ, this fully God, fully man, you know, I've been, th- and this is, you know, take this as Josh's opinion. Um, part of the conversation when we talk about Jesus today and we try and understand that is people like to have the, the, the terminology is that, and, and this was partly in, in response to Josh and Michael's kenosis video, which was so good is um, the emptying of Jesus's divinity or the the laying aside of divine divine prerogatives, um, you know, late assigned divinity, um, or or shielding himself from his own godness within the man Jesus. And I think reading through this, that you know, I think Cyril may have been pretty frustrated at people using that kind of language, because in one way, when you use that kind of language, you're diminishing the divinity of Christ. And um, and frankly speaking, it doesn't seem to me that Christ's divinity is diminished in the least in his humanity, because we see him exercising divine prerogatives all the time. When he calms the storm by saying, peace be still, when he forgives the, the crippled lower down, uh, pronounces forgiveness. I and mean, we see constantly him exercising his divine prerogative without, without confusion or without diminishment. And just because we don't see it in every single moment— because there's times where Christ had to go to the bathroom um, as, a, right. as a man. But, but I think we really need to check some of that language of the, the divinity of Christ somehow being diminished, because oftentimes our language about it does come close to um, some of the, the significant pushback you would get from most of these councils around that. It, and, and I'm speaking from the charismatic standpoint, because mm-hmm. we want to emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit within the individual to empower the individual— and so we, we come close to saying things like Jesus was essentially fully man, just filled by the Holy Spirit, and that's where the godness of him came from. And mm-hmm. that becomes very problematic in, in its outworking. And so there's, there's some really good checks within, um, well, right here, you can look at this one, right? We're going to get back mm-hmm. to our book recommendations. Um, Cyril of Alexandria's On the Unity of Christ. This is, he, Cyr, this is one of Cyril's... Um, last works where uh, when he wrote on the unity of Christ, it was long after the debate had been settled. And um, really this book kind of solidifies um, Cyril, Cyril pre pre the council of emphasis, Cyril would not have used a two nature um, language for a solution, but in, on the unity of Christ, he does use that language more often. And so this, you know, there, some of the stuff that Cyril's talking about, some of the things they're debating would be really good for us to revisit um, in, in terms of our Christological concept. And, um, and, and frankly, what I see happening in a lot of circles in, in the charismatic church is that you have people that have either been baptized in the spirit or not, and because of that, some people feel like lesser Christians than others. And while I'm not fully, I'm not fully en- en- enlivened or um, I haven't had the experience that other people have had, 
and so it's emphasizing I, something that I don't think you should put so much primacy on when the whole point is the divine and the human are united now in one person and you are invited into that. And so, you know, there's, there's some really good, um, there's some really good stances on, uh, on, um, how we're to think about Christ in, in this debate that would help us maybe, maybe find a balance today that we don't have. Hmm. I don't think that's really good. Yeah. I think some takeaways for me, is just that you've, you, you have some clear wrestling with the language or how do we, you know, we're, we're, the concern is to maintain the, what the scriptures say about Jesus, um, what they say about the, about divinity, about what it means to be God is, is uh, that he, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. He never changes that God, you're not going to be able to, you can't kill God. He can't die. He can't suffer. But yet he is the word made flesh and he suffered in the, he was born of a woman, suffered, died in the flesh and rose again in that flesh. <laughs> You know, um, how are we how are we making sure that we're we're maintaining this this here? And I think with with this whole conflict here, you see that terms can be how we understand certain terms like nature and person, um, essence. You know, hypothesis. These 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 it, it causes us to step back and really think. Um, and some of us may think, well, you know, that's that's getting into too much philosophical hair splitting. Um, well, um, maybe how can we use the resources that we have with with human language, with with maybe philosophical concepts, with um, with metaphors that we're familiar with, and with scriptural metaphors that we have and scriptural statements that we have, how can we use that to help us articulate what does it mean when we say that Jesus is God and at once yeah. God is at once God in man, and yeah. that that him the Word of God becoming flesh that is the very way in which we are saved. Um, and so, like last week, it's like, if Jesus doesn't have a, a human mind, is, 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 my, is Matthew's human mind really saved? Right. And I think what, what we're encountering here is you got concerns on both sides, but if, if this union, if we, if, we have, um, if, if we have a divine nature and a human nature in Christ that are, that are joined in a very loose way um then how much contact has the divine actually had with humanity you know i think this is what cyril was concerned about he wanted to make sure that there was at that union when we say one lord jesus christ fully human fully god that humanity was was in the most perfect contact with divinity um not only in the person of christ but in such a way that would be come the means by which and the model by which we, our nature is healed. Um, our nature is healed from corruptibility, from sin, from brokenness into incorruptibility, into eternal life, right. into right. blessedness, beatitude. Um, so I think um, there's a, there's 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 a lot at stake here, and um, the nature. I, I think Josh Hoffer, you're just so right to you know talk about all of the other unearth all of the other political and behavioral issues that are at work here um because these are and 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 how can we how can we have these conversations i look back you know looking back this how can we have these conversations in a way that is very clear and where we're taking a clear stance on things um but we're also modeling you know the 
unity, love, and respect, you know, to, to the greatest extent possible. Not being yeah. afraid to call heresy heresy, but at the same time, um, having a charitable conversation about this. <laughs> yeah, and and in an a, in an age where it's so easy to make a response, um, mm-hmm. you know, in in our in our YouTube driven social media driven age, where uh, these I I would look at at out, you know, notwithstanding the actual debate that needed to happen and and the and the deep theology that needed to be ironed out, absolutely it had to be. But it's like this would have made for the most epic showdown on YouTube of response videos if oh that goodness. had been the case back then. I mean, these guys were going at each other left and right, and um, you would have had to you would have then analysis of the response videos from John of Antioch making a video from you know whatever. But it, I'm just yeah. going if we can look at them and and just just use them as a. Uh, that check of, okay, what am I doing when I go about responding to people that I don't agree with, and how am I going about mm-hmm. doing doing it? I, I mean, n- as it stood, Nestorius and Cyril actually had to sit down and write letters, so already that cools the temper a little bit. Um, and but <laughs> and they were still hot headed in the sense of how they right, were back right, and right, forth. right. So it, to me, it's just a good it's a good example of let's let's look at some of the ways that this this may have. It, you know, if the debate had happened differently, you know, it, uh, obviously the ifs, ands, and whats, or if, ands, and buts, but if it had happened differently, what would the ramifications have been in a positive sense on church unity and what happened going forward? And mm-hmm. so it's just, to me, I look at it and go, let's, you know, let's be careful how we go about criticizing one another and how we go about disagreeing with one another and how we go about calling for everybody to step down that we have a different theological opinion with. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's just, you know, it's just a good, it's just a good thing to look at and go, history's done it before. Let's not do it again. And, you know, inevitably it seems like we always do it again, but, um, let's have the actual theological substantial conversation that doesn't have to destroy the character of the person. That's good. That's good, Josh Hoffer. All right. Well, I think we've had Father Ron sign off already. Um, yeah. so I will, uh, close us out. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We're going to pick up on this conversation again next week because uh, remember to like, subscribe, and continue commenting. You know, every time you watch uh, one of these episodes, join us next week, 4 p.m. Central Time. We're going to continue with the Council of Chalcedon in its attempt to resolve some of the issues that were not resolved in this Council of Ephesus and the Formula of Union, which we talked about today. So, Join us next week. Have a great week and tune in for other Remnant Radio episodes throughout the week. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom, so check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.